0: Here at the Sociology of Everything podcast, we acknowledge the people of Ghana Yarta, whose land this episode was mainly produced on, and whose past and present elders we pay our respects to.
1: Hi, I'm Eric Sue, And I'm Louis Everest. And
0: we're Lou and the Sioux, and this is a podcast about sociology, brought to you by UniSA, the university that's for you if you like the color blue. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Look, yeah. it's a very prominent part of pretty much every bit of UniSA branding you yeah. see. And, you know, it's actually a specific type of blue. Is it? UniSA blue. Is it? And it if absolutely. you try and use the wrong blue on some branding, you CMK, the marketing yeah. people here will be after you. Anyway.
0: All right. Well, in this podcast, we're looking at Karl Marx and Frederick Engel's famous text, The Communist Manifesto. <laughs> and we're looking at this text not because you, you Louis, and I are hard-caring members of the Communist Party, <laughs> uh, nor are other sociologists usually. It's because this text is such a seminal one in the field of sociology. And I should just say at the outset, uh, what we're not going to be able to, to look at uh, in terms of this text in this podcast is its historical dimensions. This, this text is, is not one that's just read in sociology. It's, mm. it's, in fact, it's not even just read in the university. No. Um, throughout history, loads of people have read this text and been influenced by it. Yeah. And so we're not going to be able to talk about all the historical movements this inspired, all the good and terrible things mm. that's associated mm. with. We're going to really focus in on how it's been engaged with, how it's been mm-hmm. discussed mm-hmm. by sociologists. So yeah. we're talking about sociological Marxism, not so much historical Marxism. And I think this text is really quite fascinating. It was written 170 over 170 years ago in 1848 by two authors, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. And they were writing at a, at a really interesting point in time. They were writing at a time before the, the, the birth of sociology. And that's, I think, it's probably, it's probably quite interesting also about this text is that yeah. it was written by people who didn't consider themselves sociologists. No but it later became a canonical sociological text.
1: I mean, it would have been amazing if they did consider themselves sociologists because it'd be like considering themselves something that didn't exist at the time, (laughs) but no, they didn't. But I mean, it's got all the hallmarks of something that sociologists are going to be interested in. It's explaining social changes. is explaining how a set of historical circumstances has influenced the social yeah. world and how people engage with one another.
0: You, you know, I think all of us like to think we live in the most exciting times ever. Yeah. People make a big deal about the one. Well, I was going to say the inter- the information superhighway. <laughs> that probably dates me. But when Marx and Engels were writing, mm-hmm. that was also an incredibly exciting yeah. point in time. Yeah, you know, yeah. it was the emergence of the modern world. People yeah. coming to terms yeah. with modernity. Yeah, and when I was a, when I when I first came across that term as, as a first year sociology student, I was a bit puzzled because mm-hmm. I, I heard a lot of of my sociology lectures mm. talking about modernity. I read about the topic of modernity. Mm. And it was one of those terms that I'd heard people use all the time, mm. right? Like, oh, we live in the modern world. Yeah. Or this is a very modern piece of technology mm. or mm. equipment. Mm. And there's a reason why sociologists are interested in this concept. Mm. The reason why is because it, it describes all these huge changes that happened. Yeah and that were especially apparent during the time of Marx and Engels' writing. Mm. What is modernity? How, how do you understand modernity? How do you get your head well, well,
1: like you said, it, it's, a, it's a series of really big social changes that all share a shift away from doing things in traditional ways and following just practices that are well-established to doing things because it's rational for some reason, using scientific principles to reorganise how work's done, to reorganise politics where it's not just about the same leaders being born into their position. It's about individuals having freedoms and democracy and liberalism. And you can think about some of the big processes that are occurring at the time. So the one we're going to focus on a lot today is the way work was changing and the way industry was changing, moving from feudal forms of production and farming and mm. and forms of production based around... Um, uh, guilds and and such to forms of production based around factories. I mean, that's one of the things about this text that really comes through is Karl Marx is writing this with the image of these new these new things factories in his mind and looking at what's happening inside these buildings, how workers are being exploited mm. and how a small group are being made very rich and very wealthy. And the thing to think about with modernity is this is still the period in which we live. Many of the structures that Marx describes and Engels describes in this reading are still structures that, mm. to some extent, still exist in our contemporary world. Yeah,
0: certainly, and, and that's why I think sociologists are still interested in what they have to say when they were mm. writing 170 years yeah. ago. And what I find really fascinating is, yeah, how big of a shift it would have been to go from um, a rural-based society to mm. an, an urban one, Yeah, to organize production around yeah. factories, yeah. to the... Emergence and the advance of science mm. Mm. as a as a dominant form of knowledge. Mm. I mean, these are huge, huge changes. Mm. And of course, capitalism. Mm. This is what we're going to be talking about a lot um, when we talk about this text. The capitalism as a form of economic organization being one of the most dominant ones across the world today, and certainly its emergence in the mid nineteenth century. Yeah, and so this. Piece by Marx and Engels, I think it's quite fascinating. It gives us a explanation for how capitalism came about. So it doesn't just describe what capitalism is. Which I, and by the way, I will say that's one of the most influential things about this text. It's provided sociologists and other social scientists with the framework for how to understand how capitalism functions. But in this text, Marx and Engels are interested in. in and where it came from, like, we weren't always a capitalist society. Mm-hmm. Humans haven't always been capitalist, but it's we've become capitalist. And then they're also trying to understand where we're going. Yeah. So they're trying to tell a story. This is like a really interesting story that they're trying to tell us. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of how we got to where we got to, what's their explanation for how capitalism came about?
1: Well... I mean, a key component of this writing and Marx and Engels' work more generally is it is pretty much all comes back to what they describe as the means of production, the way in which the goods and the things of society, from food to clothing to to wealth itself, the way everything is produced, and on top of that, how it's distributed amongst the population. Mm. That's a key thing. And when they look backwards and forwards for that matter, they sort of start there. How was things produced in that society? And then how did it get distributed amongst people? And so when it comes to the question of how did capitalism come about... That's what they look at. Mm. What changed with the means of production? And so with the period pre-capitalism, feudalism, you have a means of production where it's really locked into people's birth and the position that they're born into when it comes to farming in particular. And there's a, a broader structure that's locked in place by religious beliefs and also by the monarchy and that structure and then on top of that, there are guilds which produce things once again in very traditional ways, kind of in artisan style ways. And so that was a pre-capitalist thing. And then all of a sudden, a new cohort of people started producing things in new ways and using all these modern modern principles, using science, using rational thought to, to not just make something the way it had been made for a 100 years, but to try and make it quicker and maybe even to work with other people and to try and organise groups of people or to even try and employ people to try and make things in more quicker and efficient ways and then to sell it. So that means a production that we see play out now on a very grand scale where we have factories and we have one or two owners owning a factory with a big workforce, but it's that key shift.
0: Okay, so so if I'm... If I'm um, hearing what you have to say correctly, Marx and Engels, they're telling a story about how capitalism came about. They're focusing on the means of production of how things are produced Mm as sort of the key focus of their story. Mm -hmm. And when they're focusing on how things are produced, Mm -hmm. they're focusing on the groups that are responsible for how those things are, are made. So if you understand the history of capitalism, you have to understand the history of how different groups have fought over, have been in conflict over the means of production. Yes. Right. Because, you know, it's very interesting. Sometimes we like to think uh, of um, our understanding of the world being like mm. full of cooperation and yeah. people holding hands. Mm. Uh, and and and, yeah. and and you know giving each other high fives, <laughs> uh, but mm. for Marx and Engels, mm. the world is full of conflict. Yeah, conflict is what drives history. It's what has yeah. dr- driven us yeah. to capitalism. Yeah, right. So so with with feudalism, just so like mm. so if I'm hearing what what you're saying correctly, mm. the groups that were in conflict then were the the serfs mm. and the feudal lords. So you're mm-hmm. the lords who were born into this class who owned land who extracted wealth from the serfs who produced things for them, mm-hmm. largely in a rural and agrarian settings. Mm-hmm. And then something happened to that system. So that system mm-hmm. was in place, but it was disrupted. And it was disrupted mm-hmm. by this group that Marx and Engels labeled the bourgeoisie. Yes. That's quite a mouthful. Yeah. Who are the bourgeoisie? What are they about? Mm-hmm. What, what's their deal?
1: Well, they're that group that came in and developed more efficient ways to produce and make things. And in particular, who then owned the means of production, Mm. who who owned factories and then made their factories, using scientific principles, ultra-efficient and then employed people into those factories. And as this system of factory owners and workers... And workers being paid to do things in ever more efficient ways began to take hold and began to just eviscerate the older historical ways of producing goods, then it started to dominate. You couldn't compete. If you're an artisan hand sculpting something, you can't compete with a factory pumping out a thousand of these items on a regular basis.
0: Let's just, the sharpener focus, let's just Mm. pretend I'm a feudal serf, because this is what I do all Mm. the time. Everyone does all of these, like, yeah. re- like, some people are Civil War reenactors, <laughs> other people do cosplay. Yeah. I do feudal surf, <laughs> pretend, make. What's really. the,
1: what's, the, is it laughing? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: mean, I think it is laughing, right? Yeah. I could have that term wrong. <laughs> but yeah, sorry.
0: Okay, so, like, I'm, you know, on the gruel countryside, yeah. and I am making things by hand. Yeah. Everything has to be done all by myself. Right. And then you come along, you're the bourgeoisie
1: and you basically say you are just doing it incorrectly. You know what I've got? What have you you got? Well, I've got machinery for one thing. Uh, I've got, I've got the industrial revolutions rolling along and suddenly I have these new tools that I can use in my factory. Mm -hmm. I have machines where I, uh, workers can do simpler and simpler tasks and I can split up. The jobs that are involved in producing an item, I can train workforces to do simpler and simpler jobs, quicker and more efficiently to produce a single entity, yeah. and I can use the cutting-edge technology of the day. And
0: so that and that point about specialization, I think, is really mm. important to, to focus on here. If you think about like what a restaurant might <laughs> be like in the mm. in the feudal era, mm. I mean, it would be a nightmare for Gordon Ramsay, right? Because like it's one person doing. Everything. There's no there's, there's less specialization. Mm. So like you're the cook, mm. you're in the front of house, mm. you're like taking people's money, you're serving the food. Mm. Can you imagine how slow the food would get out? You know, like Gordon Ramsay would be like it's raw <laughs> and you know what else he'd say? Why does he always say touch it?
1: Touch it <laughs> <laughs> <You> know, Yeah.
0: Classic <laughs> yeah. <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, <cold."
1: laughs> <Yeah>, it's true. <laughs> Classic donkey, Ramsay. Yeah. So he would have hated the feudal era. Feudal yeah. era
0: right? Yeah. But in the in the in the for so the bourgeoisie, how do they Revolutionize the means of production of say something like food. You yeah. just focus. If you're the cook, you yeah. just cook one thing and one thing only. Yeah. And then other people have their defined, more defined roles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's quite it's insightful um, in terms of how different the capitalism is from the system it preceded. Mm. But there is something nefarious. You see, it's all about conflict. Yeah. For Marx and Engels, are always understanding. How are some groups trying to get something over another group? Mm. So we've heard about the bourgeoisie. Let's now hear about the people they're exploiting. Because the feudal lords, they were exploiting the serfs. The bourgeoisie mm. came and upset that, but they're not this group that is just doing it out of the goodness of their own mm. you know, hearts. There's a group they're trying to exploit, and that's the proletariat. Yeah. Who are the
1: proletariat? So the, the proletariat are the other part of the factory. They're the workers. Because the bourgeoisie uh, you can you can bet your bottom dollar they're not going to be on the on the production line putting things together using their hands. Their role is really just to own the factory and to supply the capital to get it going and then it's the workers of the proletariat. And if you think about what happens over time, as the the members of the bourgeoisie want to make more money, they want to make their factories more efficient, they want to produce more goods, they want it to cost less to produce more goods. Mm. And so this new cohort that's developing, these workers, the proletariat they're constantly having downwards pressure on their wages because every time they, they cost an extra dollar per hour, mm-hmm. that's less profit out of whatever so, it is they're working on.
0: Let's break it down. So imagine now you're a part of the bourgeoisie, Louis. Yeah. It's probably not too difficult to imagine. Yeah. I'm actually
1: wearing a top hat and monocle, as, yeah. as we say.
0: And a cat on his lap,
1: there's <laughs> is a, is a
0: fireplace, <laughs> and he's also wearing a cape from some i right? <laughs>
1: Okay,
0: right. okay. And, and, I'm, and I'm, you know, asking you about your life. And I want to know a lot of things. I want to know uh, your thoughts Mm. about the latest fashions and cape wear. (laughs) But I also want to understand how do you make your money? Yeah. Uh, Because you seem to make a lot of it. Just keep making it year after year and making a lot of money. How does profit come about? How do you, how does that come about in a capitalist system?
1: So it comes about by making surplus value out of the items that are produced in my factory. So in a very basic sense, your expenditures are yes. less than your takings, That's right? right. And probably my biggest expenditure, or at least one of my biggest expenditures, is the wages I have to pay my workers. Yeah. That's that's a big one. Yeah. And so really, I want to drive that down as much as possible, okay. and then I can increase my profit.
0: So if you can drive your, your expenditure down, yeah. you earn profit, how do we do that? How do we lower... The amount we pay our workers. Yeah. Now, now I'm going to... I broke
1: myself into the first one. Yeah. You know, well, yeah. oh, it's a way. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, there's a few different ways. One way is to find ever greater workforces. Okay. Because the more workers there are, yeah. that the at my disposable, the greater competition there is amongst those workers. Yeah. Uh, so if someone comes to me and says they want a pay rise, I can say, no, you're out the door. I'm going to hire someone else tomorrow morning. So that's one way. So in some ways, that brings in an interesting point, because this system, capitalism, it kind of needs to keep growing and expanding. It needs to get bigger and bigger. I need to constantly have more workers at my disposal. And on top of that, these goods have to be sold as well. So there's another, another aspect to this constant growth that's embedded in this system, but I mean that kind of makes me think there's a there's a reason it's not really sustainable the way this is going about.
0: It's just it's a weird word to use me but there's a perversity about this whole yeah. system and Marx and Engels I think they they're very attuned to it. Mm. First of all, if you're from the viewpoint of the workers, there's something weird that's going on. Yeah. You are involved in a system of production that has produced more goods than ever before in human history. Capitalist right. societies produce more things than, in, than right. in ever in human history, right? I yeah. mean, if you go to a supermarket, yeah. it's astounding. Yeah, the, the earth weeps. <laughs> yeah, but there's so <laughs> yes. much that's being produced, right? Yeah. And the irony is, mm. as more wealth is being generated, Yeah, they think as it keeps going on, capitalism makes you poor as the proletariat. So it's like there's more wealth being produced but mm-hmm. the workers get poor and poor. Yeah. Okay? This is their this is this is their observation insight. And they get poor because of a mechanism of capitalism that tries to basically create greater number of people that are unemployed mm-hmm. that are desperate for work and as we went over before mm. that's because if you have a lot of people competing for fewer number of jobs mm. then that means wages can go further and further down yes. and whether we see this even in 2020 one oh, yeah. right absolutely we see factories sometimes mm. uprooting mm. you know a few years ago in adelaide australia the mitsubishi automotive plant just disappeared
1: was it mitsubishi was it was one of them? Yeah, yeah. Mitsubishi and, and oh, yeah. Holden, obviously. Left. Yeah, they yeah. It, it's, it's yeah. quite astounding. Yeah. and it's
0: not like Mitsubishi no longer makes cars. Yeah, they just went somewhere else where wages were cheaper. Yeah, right. And mm. and then the the focus on machinery. I think you yeah. mentioned investment in machinery. One mm. of the key things that does is it first mm. of all deprives them of the job. Mm. That's important. Yeah, but also a machine can't revolt. It can't. Yeah
1: talk back yeah, and it
0: works 24 hours a day exactly right.
1: and and there's I think they're, they're probably the two key aspects and on top of that I'd just add that there's something to simplifying the actual work that's being done if you think back to that kitchen analogy you said before the people on each spot the person who's flipping the burgers or doing something else they're doing less and less skilled jobs instead yeah. of actually flipping the burger they're just pressing a button and a little automated hand flips a burger or something yeah. else so you can reduce costs by... By making it a simpler job and making your workforce more disposable as a result. Yeah. Which is something else they do well, in Well,
0: and, and, you know, according to uh, Marx and Engels, mm. all jobs, even the skilled yeah. jobs are under threat in capitalism. Yeah. Because, again, just want to put us, uh, to stress this point. Mm. According to Marx and Engels, the purpose of the bourgeoisie is to generate profit. Yes. They're never satisfied they always want more. Yeah. And by the way, this is something that we've just accepted across the mm-hmm. world for the most part, right? Yeah. We talk about economic growth
1: yeah.
0: as being a thing, GDP, right? Yeah. Gross domestic product. Yeah. If it's not growing, yeah. then there's something wrong. We always think something's wrong yeah. with the economy. So, let's so let's imagine now, this system means that more and more people are in precarious positions. Mm-hmm. They're desperate for work, mm-hmm. right? They'll do anything. Uh, to to get a job, it gets so bad that what happens? What what do they think eventuates from all of this?
1: Well, one thing that eventuates, like you said, is the conditions for the proletariat just get appalling. They just get absolutely appalling. And that kind of brings us back to what Marx was looking at at the time. He was watching these factories, and this was pre a lot of the changes to work that we have now that protect workers, that limit the amount of hours they can work, that make sure machines are being protected. The early factories were horrific places, absolutely horrific places. And so the conditions become so bad. And on top of that, the workers are all in a kind of similar position. So they start to identify with one another, talk to one another. They have a shared experience of being pushed to the bottom of this horrible new structure that's developed that eventually they might start to share ideas about how terrible it is and the need for change. And in fact, it actually brings us to the aims of this whole text. This whole text, the whole purpose of this, and the reason it was written this time, and it's not a sociological thing, it's, it's something that's written to try and tell workers. It's a statement about communism about what can happen but it's trying to enlighten workers about their actual position Your the reason your work's so horrible and you don't make much money and there's you're trapped in this structure isn't because your specific boss is a bad person it's because this entire system that's going to force you to have to sell your time for your entire life and you're never going to have enough money to escape that position. And your work's always going to be boring and it's always going to be dangerous. And so over time, people might start to have a shared identity. The proletariat, that that class, might start to have a shared identity and want to change the system. And in fact, the way Marx and Engels writes about it, I mean, what do you think? I think there's an inevitability about
0: that. Yeah. You know, again, they're telling a story, right? And mm-hmm. telling a story about how we got to where we got to. But then they also think history is going somewhere. Yeah. Some philosophers say this is a teleological view of history, a, a view that history has some end point, mm. okay, that it's ultimately going towards. So for Marx and Engels, that end point is communism. Yeah. So capitalism eventually gets, the conditions for workers get yeah. so bad, yeah. there's a revolution and that new revolution is communism. Yeah. And what's the key feature of communism? It's the abolition of private property, Yeah. okay, because that's how ultimately the bourgeoisie keep the power according to Marx and mm-hmm. Engels. Cause they they own it. It's like Jeff Bezos. He's not out there like scanning everything yeah. and like making the deliveries. Yeah. But he owns it. He, the, he is the, I think he might be the most, the wealthiest yeah. person on earth. Yeah. On earth right now. And
1: I think right? the, the key point when I was reading this, uh, both recently and as an undergraduate when I was reading it is that private property. I mean, they're not so much talking about someone picking up a stick and shaving it into something and making it their personal item. What they're really, uh, angry about is that people can own the means of production. So with the private property that they're trying to bring into public hands or take away from private ownership is, like you said, the ability to own factories, to own something that locks in place this entire structure and forces people to have to work and give up their time and get paid a pittance for it.
0: And it's interesting. They they talk about how you, you might be horrified mm. that this is what the communists want. Mm. And, but their argument is if things get so bad, mm. things get so bad... The idea of private property as a law, yeah. even though it's on the books, for the vast majority of people, it's just a, it's a, it's a fantasy, it's, a, it's an illusion. Because most people don't have very much, and it's yeah. actually, if you look at even statistics now around the world, how yeah. much people actually, how much wealth people own compared to yeah. you know what's owned by the bourgeois?
1: Yeah, and and that was locked it's, into the system, a, right? Because the workers were never, ever, ever, ever going to get paid enough to be able to themselves buy a slice of the action. Yeah. They were only ever going to the system of capitalism was only ever going to pay workers enough so that they could survive and work. Mm. That was it. There was no surplus there. Well,
0: this actually leads us to one of the sections. There, I think, in the third, the third section of the actual text, which is titled "Socialist and Communist Literature," hmm. there's some uh, there's some interesting things actually going on there. Hmm. And I remember the first time I read the Communist Manifesto, um, especially as an undergraduate student, I was really perplexed by it because it's like there's they're telling a story in the other sections, and there's some of it very poetic language yeah. that they're using, and 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 then there's just this this weird thing where they start randomly talking about like socialist literatures and, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and communist and different types of literature. i like, well, why are we talking about literature now? But it's forget the, the term literature. Just more think about different perspectives that emerge, different viewpoints that emerge in this capitalist society that will try to address and deal with what they think are the major ills of the system, yeah. meaning that there is this great inequality that emerges through capitalism. And so they're marking out positions. One of the positions they mark out is feudal socialism. This is relatively straightforward. It's the idea that like the past was better. Let's go mm. back to a feudal
1: mm. um and, and when they talk you know, about that society they, they really talk about some of those forms of socialism. Uh, being driven or at least contributed to by people who benefited <laughs> from those societies. So yeah. with feudal socialism, it's the people who benefited from feudal systems saying, where with you workers? Uh, this capitalist stuff's gone too far. Feudalism was better. It's- if you
0: have seen that show, Downtown <laughs> Abbey, it, there's a really romanticised view of the aristocracy. Yeah. And it's like, oh, at least they were dignified. <laughs> and it
1: wasn't
0: this. But I should also say... Marx and Engels, you see, they have a mixed view Mm. of capitalism and of industrialization. On the one hand, they think it is so unequal. There's some awful things Mm. about it. But they also think it's necessary to get to communism. They they like the idea that so much is produced. Mm. They think Marx and Engels applaud Mm. people for the ingenuity Mm. to produce these things at at a scale and rate what we've never seen before. Mm. They just disagree how the benefits are shared. Yes. So, so, you see, so, um,
1: but... uh, Can can I interject for one second? With those different uh, forms of examining the problem that capitalism has created and the inequality that capitalism created, so we had that kind of... Feudalistic version of socialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one I wouldn't mind just uh, looking at for a second is that conservative or bourgeois socialism. Okay. Because that's a little different in that it's, it's a group of people saying, look, if we can just shift capitalism to benefit the workers a bit more, it's actually not too bad. You know, Let, let's limit how many hours a day well, you can work. Let, let's, there's let's think around the edges.
0: There's, there's like, There's one that's truly conservative, and the conservative one is basically, there's a fantasy element to it. Yeah. Okay? They say they want all the advantages of modern social conditions without the struggles and dangers necessarily Mm -hmm. resulting from them. So it's kind of like saying, like, Mm -hmm. we want capitalism, but no Mm -hmm. one needs to lose. Everyone can be a winner. But but, but what Marx and Engels are trying to show Mm -hmm. is, like, where does the profit come from? How come... Mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos can literally launch himself into space, okay? Why can he do that? And it's because he has all this wealth. He's able to basically take the, the the wealth that so many other people have helped him produce and claim it as his own.
1: Well, they say it's rotten to the core, right? That, that's what those other people who are more kind of, as we, we think about how socialist movements, although I know we're not discussing this position in history, but... That They weren't big fans of certain labor movements and, and people who just got small concessions and increases in Why wages not? and things. Well, because they said well, the whole system fundamentally the, rotten. The,
0: there's one... There's other position they talk about, the mm. petty bourgeois socialism yeah. form of literature. And they say what that's articulated in that particular form of literature is this idea that let's preserve the middle class. And this is something mm. we hear all the time, right? Yeah. Like you have doctor um, unions. Mm. You have all these different unions still trying to say... We have a specialized skill, mm. and we can't be easily replaced like just the work, the average worker, like an Amazon mm. delivery person. Yeah. We have a very specialized skill. Even though capitalism is trying to encroach on that, uh, let's defend against it. Let's mm. preserve our wages. Let's preserve mm. how our system works. Mm-hmm. And they think, again, mm. they're, they're, what they're not realizing is capitalism is coming for you. Yeah. what well, it's coming for you. So
1: let me ask you this. If we manage to overcome, and by we, I'm talking on behalf of <laughs> Marx and Engels here, <laughs> but if if the pitfalls of these other versions of socialism aren't, aren't fallen into, and if communism does come about, then what happens? Because they look back at all of history and they say mm-hmm. there's always been these classes that have driven things forward. Mm-hmm. So if communism does come about... And people can't privately own the means of production. Are there classes anymore? What happens to the classes?
0: Yeah, well, this is where they think history ends. This is where Mm. their teleological views of history brings them. Communism is the end stage of human history because for the first time in human history, according to them, the group that's dominant, okay, who holds the upper hand, is the majority. And all previous ones... The, the people who benefited the most were always just a small group of people. The bourgeoisie, the feudal lords, slave owners. Mm. They, they're very much of the belief that this is where it ends. Mm. And also, I should say, they have a lot of flowery, lofty yeah. hopes for communism. You know, they think that, like, in communism, people no longer... They no longer do things for survival. Yeah. They do things because they think they're good at them. And I think that, mm-hmm. I mean, we can, there's a lot of different mm-hmm. things we can critique about this text. And we will talk about some of those critiques. But I do think it's an interesting thing. What if it's not all about dollars and cents? What if it's not about putting food on your table? And I think this is, you know, a question I often I ask some of my students when I teach um, this course face-to-face is I say, mm-hmm. if you could do anything you wanted, money was no mm-hmm. object. What would you
1: do? I'd move to Tasmania and start distilling whiskey. Okay, single malts. I'm sure it'd be delicious, or maybe
0: not. Maybe not. You know, Uh, do what I would do. I would be like Gordon Ramsay, go on your bed, say, "Touch it, (laughs) (laughs) you donkey." I'll do that. Uh, But but, uh, you know, I think um, it is worth asking then uh, before we get to the next segment, where they went awry. Like how. How come this text is is received so critically by some people? Why
1: didn't communism come about? Well...
0: What's the legacy of this text?
1: I mean, that's such an interesting question. And I think there would be many ways to answer that, in, in honesty. Because there'd be some people who still see this as a very accurate description of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And who'd still accord to it. And then there are others who couldn't view this without escaping the fact that there were places where, at least in name, communist regimes did come about. Mm. Interestingly, not where Marx would have predicted. It wasn't in the cities where the factories were developed a lot of the times. In Mm. fact, particularly within China, for instance, it was across a lot of rural settings Mm. where um, communism at least began. But it led to some horrific regimes. Well, I I was even also
0: thinking about the fact that, like, we, we didn't see... I mean, the last line of this text is nine. quite something, isn't it? Yeah, actually... Uh, let, let the ruling classes tremble at a communistic revolution. The yeah. proletarians... Put, have nothing to lose but their chains, they have a world yeah. to win, working men yeah. of all countries unite. Yeah. As we know, yeah. that unity yeah. didn't necessarily yeah. occur. So,
1: in looking at this text, because, once again, this text is driven towards trying to create that unity. This yeah. text is trying to lift the veil from workers' eyes and to yeah. let them know they're part of this internationally oppressed cohort of people. Yeah. So, that obviously didn't happen. And then on top of that, I would suggest that some of the other forms of socialism that Marx is critical of in here... Had Some pretty big successes. I mean, the reality is that that workplaces did become much safer because of the labor union and the labor movement.
0: The so reformist movements, which I'm not they, sure they had huge so that, successes. That, that's one aspect. Another mm. argument that's been advanced by people like David Rodinger, mm. uh in his really famous book, The Wages of Whiteness, mm. talked about how there's all these things that keeps worker unity mm. from actually forming. Like yeah. race, like yes. gender, like nationality. Although yeah. Some of these things are already predicted by Marx. Yeah. But they downplayed it. That ultimately, the, the little improvements on the side, nibbling around the edges, yeah. won't ultimately satiate the workers. But this is what sociologists have found. They said maybe the contradictions of capitalism weren't so insurmountable. They're mm. actually, in fact, capitalism is based on those contradictions. Yeah. And we won't be able to, we could, we could probably spend a whole nother hour talking yeah. about the legacy of this text yeah. and of Marxism in general in sociology. But I think it's quite interesting, isn't it? Just to think about, the, you know, the picture is more. Dif- is, is a lot yeah. more complex.
1: It, it is, in some ways, it is a simplistic understanding of the social world. Because if we think of all the things that make up the social world, Marx and Engels really focus first and foremost on the means of production and work and see everything else, all the cultural parts of your life, all the things you do in your spare time, Mm -hmm. they sort of saw as being uh, originating from that part of your life. But you know, was very much a uh, a live to work, not a work to live sort of person, right? <laughs> yeah. and,
0: and you know, I will say uh, uh, the reason why we, we we look at these theories that were developed over one hundred and fifty years ago, one hundred seventy years ago, as case in this, in, in you know, in the case of this text, mm. is not because we think everything applies now right. that it, that it did before. Uh, when the text was written, it's also because things have changed or there are some things that maybe were a little bit too simplistic. Yeah. Or we're just frankly a little bit off base. Yeah, but but there's some things that continue to remain yes. very relevant in the text. So I want to end with those, and then we're gonna we're gonna go to our for our, our, our really aptly summit named name say what. So one of the things I think we often identify this text with is the conflict theory in sociology. So what is the conflict theory in sociology? Very quickly before we
1: so the conflict theory in sociology finish. is that the social structures that exist around us. So like workplaces, laws, all those things they function to create conflict. They separate the people into certain classes or groups and hold them in competition with one another. Yeah. And I think you can understand that very simply in comparison to the alternative point of view, the, the functionalist theory, which looks at how social structures bring people together and create social cohesion. So it's like
0: an approach. So it's like if I want to understand how an organization works, yeah. I could ask a lot of questions like, um, where do people gather? How do people communicate with one another? One other way of understanding how organization work is just to go, who's beefing with whom?
1: Yeah. yeah. Right? What groups
0: don't like one another? Yeah. Yeah. Okay? Who and, never
1: sit together. And
0: that that's like yeah. what Marx is yeah. known for, right? Yeah. It's just like, who's beefing with whom? Yeah. Who's fighting with whom? And I think that's yeah. really useful. Now, this brings us to a segment uh, we like to call Say What? <laughs> <laughs> Where we find a quote in the text that needs further explication louis you found one for us i do
1: as i flick to the page as we speak so this is uh my quote i'm just going to go straight into it here it is all fixed fast frozen relations with their train of ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions are swept away all new formed ones become antiquated before they can ossify all that is solid melts into air That is holy is profane, and man is at last compelled to face the sober senses, his real conditions of life, and his relations with his kind. So, the reason I really like that quote is because it examines a part of capitalism that sociologists still look at on a very regular basis. And that's the the, the fact that a capitalist system is one that constantly needs to adapt and change. It's constantly forcing people to revolutionise how they're producing goods, to do it more efficiently, to compete with others, to find new markets, to lower wages. It's an evolving thing that sociologists are very interested in. And it means that, all the traditional ways of doing things, of understanding yourself and your relations with other, are constantly being melted away.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it's a description of the world that's quite fascinating. Mm. It's one that says that the modern world is constantly one that's in flux. Yeah. There's no, there's no steady things we can firmly plant our feet on. Mm. And that's certainly true in terms of people's working lives. This yeah. is their main argument. But... As we'll see if we look at some other texts, it's also true of modernity more broadly.
1: Yeah. If you do something because it's the most efficient way to do it, as opposed to it's the way your parents did it and their parents did it, then there's always going to be a more efficient way to do it. That can be improved every year as technology gets better. Yeah, The theorist
0: of of modernity, Anthony Giddens, once said that where we were promised answers mm -hmm. through modernity... It's actually left with some more questions. Yeah. So on that note, uh, we might bring it to a close and hope we've left you with some interesting questions to think about. Thanks very much for listening. Lou and the Sioux is a sociology podcast hosted by Eric Sue and Louis Everest. It's produced and edited by Eric Sue, with special assistance from UniSA Online and UniSA Justice and Society. To learn more about studying sociology and other programs online or in person at the University of South Australia, visit unisa.edu.au where you can search for more details. Loon the Sioux is primarily recorded on the lands of the Ghana people. The hosts of the podcast would like to pay their respects to elders past, present, and emerging. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more about the podcast, visit our website at sociologypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.